Well, hello, friends. Grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, be with you. Welcome to Sermons from the Mount podcast. My name is Pastor Mark O'Neill. I currently serve as the pastor of Mount Olivet United Methodist Church in Manio, North Carolina. Each week, we will post here audio recordings of the sermons that I preach from that church. Hope this one is a blessing to you. God bless. Take care. lesson this morning in our sermon text comes from the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the 18th chapter. We're going to take a look at verses 21 through 35. Again, this is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Who's him? Thank you. Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. My friends, this is the word of God for you and I, the children of God. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, this past week in our Wednesday Bible study, we're talking about the fact that Jesus, brother Jude, and his other brothers and sisters weren't exactly all in on Jesus being the Messiah when his ministry first began. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, not even his brothers believed in him. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, his family says that Jesus is out of his mind. And yet, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see Jesus' brothers 
with his mother and the other disciples after Jesus returned to heaven. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see that they are all present there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fills all of Jesus' followers and gives birth to our church. Jesus' brothers James becomes a key leader in the church in Jerusalem, writes the letter that bears his name in our New Testament. Same with his brother Jude. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, that Jesus' brothers and their wives travel around spreading the gospel message, throwing themselves into the ministry of the church. And so what happened? What caused such a dramatic change in Jesus' family that they went from doubters to defenders, from mockers to messengers? The resurrection happened. Our Bible study text says that the resurrection of Jesus brought his brothers to faith and inspired their ministry. And then we were all asked a very profound question. What difference does the resurrection make to you? What difference does the resurrection make to you? The short answer, friends, is that it should make all the difference. After all, that's why we gather this morning. That's why we pray. That's why we read from the pages of Scripture and find ourselves inspired and convicted and challenged and in awe because we know it to be God's holy word. That's why we hope for and believe in miracles. It's the very basis of our faith, and without it, we may just be some social club that meets regularly and does good works just to make ourselves feel good. It gives us hope for a life with God both now and for all eternity. You may say, well, how? Because it's the resurrection of Christ Jesus, friends, that saves us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But he has been raised. Which is why we read in Romans chapter 4, 24 through 25, that like Abraham, we are counted righteous, for we believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. By raising Jesus from the dead, God declared his satisfaction and approval of the payment Christ made on our behalf for our sins on the cross. Through the resurrection, for those that believe, we are forgiven all of our sins, all of our transgressions, all of our missteps and our mistakes, and can now live with an assurance and a hope living on both this side and that side of heaven, the abundant lives that God wants for each and every one of us. A hope brought about by our relationship with the creator of the universe, all made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, friends, the resurrection makes all the difference. Which is why our passage this morning is so important. Because as much of a difference as the resurrection makes, and as much peace and hope as it may bring to us, I want us to pay careful attention to the last two verses that I read this morning because they give us a warning. In fact, the whole passage begs us to ask the question, do I forgive as much as I have been 
forgiven. Last week, you and I discussed the verses just prior to this and about our need to consistently and constantly reach out to those that may seem to be wandering off the path of Christ-like living, yet at the same time recognizing that we are all in that boat together. All of us are sinners. Most of us are stubborn. But again, all of us are in the need of the grace and mercy of God, willing to be held accountable by our brothers and sisters. We talked about how we cannot be a restorative community if we are content on pointing out the specks in our neighbor's eyes with a big old log sticking out of ours. That pointing a finger towards someone in an attempt to point out their flaws only guarantees we have three fingers pointing back at us and our own flaws that we would choose to ignore. We talked about the fact that we cannot give up on each other, as difficult and as stubborn as we may be, because God does not give up on us. Although God does expect us to humbly approach his throne in repentance, seeking his forgiveness of those words, acts, and thoughts that don't glorify him. Once again, friends, all God asks of us is that we treat each other the same way God treats us. And this morning, we get to unpack the forgiveness piece. Specifically in those occasions where someone may have done something directly to us. That's what Peter is asking here. After he heard Jesus lay out a form of church discipline for unrepentant sinners, Peter wants to know, well, exactly how many times are we supposed to forgive somebody who does something to us? The early rabbinic teaching seems to think that three times was sufficient. So Peter here is actually going over and above that two times over. How many times, Jesus? Seven times? Because that's got to be plenty, right? And seven is the perfect number, so this would be perfect forgiveness, right, Jesus? To which Jesus says, no, not seven, try 77, or in some translations, seven times seven. Now friends, even though Jesus is using hard numbers here, I don't want you to think that he's prescribing a limit. He's not suggesting that we keep a ledger, and once we hit 77 or 490, then we stop forgiving people. What Jesus means here is an unlimited number of times, an almost incalculable number of times. And to make that point, Jesus tells the parable. We have a servant before his king who owes his king a tremendous debt. And you say, well, how tremendous? One talent is worth 6,000 denarii. A worker was paid one denarii a day. Taken literally 10,000 talents, which is what we are told the servant owes, would be the amount of money you would earn if you were to work 60 million days or roughly 193,000 years. How much money do you reckon you would make if you worked 193,000 years? I mean, probably a lot, right? One commentary said that our modern-day equivalent would be zillions of dollars. I had a professor one time who would refer to this as adult money when you're talking about numbers this high. 
But anyway, instead of selling this man and his family and everything he owed to pay his outrageous debt, which is what the king intended to do, after the servant comes to him and begs him for patience, begs him for mercy, the king, with astonishing mercy, forgives the debt in its entirety. So the servant then leaves, and I'm sure he's feeling a tremendous weight has been lifted off of his shoulders, and he runs into a fellow servant who just happens to owe him a hundred denarii, which will be about four months' worth of work. And since he had just been forgiven 193,000 years worth of debt, surely he can forgive four months' worth, right? Wrong. Even though his debtor begs him for mercy, begs him for patience, using the same language he used with the king, he has no mercy, no compassion, shows no forgiveness, and instead has that debtor thrown into debtor's prison. By contrast, he had been forgiven by the king about 600,000 times the debt he was now refusing to forgive. The king heard about this, called the servant he had previously forgiven back, chastised him for his lack of mercy, had him detained and tortured until he would pay back the entirety of his debt. And then Jesus gives us these words, so my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Friends, do you forgive as much as you've been forgiven? A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. Let me say that again. A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. Now this parable assumes that you and I as disciples, as believers and followers of Christ, are by definition a forgiven people because that's the difference the resurrection makes, right? The parable also seems to make clear that the initiative is with God. It is because He has first forgiven that we can be expected, in fact enabled to forgive. But the forgiveness we have already received may be forfeited by our failure to forgive in our turn. That's kind of stiff, isn't it? The forgiveness we have already received may be forfeited by our failure to forgive in return. It was freely given, yes, but friends, it cannot be presumed on. One of my commentaries says that there in, is in this parable a fascinating blend of the motive of fear of punishment in verses 34 through 35 with the more fundamental motive of gratitude and imitation of the grace of God. We often say that we love because he, what, first loved us. Perhaps we should also add we must forgive because he first forgave us. A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. We say as much each and every week when we say the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, our sins, as we forgive those who trespass against us. I find this interesting. If you go back and read in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus teaches the disciples how it is we're supposed to pray, of all the petitions, of all the lines in that prayer, of all the things that we say, this is the only line 
that Jesus goes on to unpack a little bit or gives a little editorial about or seems to stress or gives us a little more. He says in verses 14 through 15 of chapter 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's there again in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, when Jesus tells the disciples, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your it's in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Friends, I don't know about you, but if something shows up time and time and time again in Scripture... I think maybe God really, really, really wants us to chew on it for a little bit. That vital connection between God's abiding forgiveness of us and of our in turn forgiving others tells us, friends, that we must forgive. It's the family style for the family of God and it starts with the Father and follows down from there. It's not some weird demand on God's part. It's not some hoop we must jump through to earn our salvation or some trick we have to perform like some kind of trained dog that God just wants to see us do. The reason for the connection between God's forgiving us and our forgiving others is because of the sheer power of God's forgiveness. His forgiveness is simply so great that it must and will change us the reason God expects us to forgive as a result of our being forgiven is the same reason why you can expect to be wet when you jump in the ocean water is wet and when you immerse yourself in it you get wet so also with forgiving grace grace is magnetic and it is beautiful and when God immerses you in grace and saves your life eternally by it you will be dripping with grace yourself You'll be full of grace and truth, and so then you must spread it to others. God forgives us daily. We forgive others daily. Forgiveness, friends, becomes our lifestyle. One of my commentaries said this. It said, what a happy world this would be if this rule of our Lord's was more known and more obeyed. How many of the miseries of mankind are occasioned by disputes, quarrels, lawsuits, and an obstinate tenacity about what men call their rights. How many of them might be avoided if men were more willing to forgive and more desirous of peace? Let us never forget that a fire cannot go on burning without fuel. Just in the same way it takes two to make a quarrel. Let us resolve that by God's grace of these, these two we will never be one. Let us resolve to return good for evil, blessing for cursing, and so melt down enmity and change our foes into friends. Nothing so grieves the Holy Spirit and brings spiritual darkness over the soul as giving way to a quarrelsome and unforgiving temper. Are you nursing a grudge against anyone? Is it not time to put it to death and recognize that your begrudging spirit 
is just as sinful as that which caused you offense in the actions of another? It is sad to see how much bitterness, unmercifulness, spite, hardness of heart, and unkindness there is among men. When we give proof that we are at peace with God, washed in Christ's blood, born of the Spirit, and made children of God by grace and adoption, let us remember this passage. Like our Father in heaven, let us be forgiving. What do you think, friends? Do you forgive as much as you have been forgiven? Now understand, I'm not saying you have to be a doormat or take abuse or open yourself up to being taken advantage of or taken for granted. But I do want us to think about this parable that Jesus told all of us this morning and try to understand this. What are the number and quality of others' sins against you in comparison with the quantity and quality of your sins against God? What are the number and quality of others' sins against you in comparison with the quantity and quality of your sins against God? A community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. I want to close this morning with a prayer that I came across this week. It's written by a lady named Christina Rossetti. She's an English poet that lived in the 1800s. My friends, let us pray. O oh God, gracious and merciful, give us, we entreat you, a humble trust in your mercy and suffer not our heart to fail us. Though our sins be seven, though our sins be seventy times seven, though our sins be more in number than the hairs of our head, yet give us grace and loving penitence to cast ourselves down into the depth of your compassion. And may we then extend similar grace and compassion to those around us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Until next time, God bless. Take care.